Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. You're tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. The following interview was hosted by LUF's Human Performance Advisor and Senior Man's Performance Journal author, Jim McNamara. The conversation was recorded at our 2023 National Leadership and Performance Summit, which was held in Annapolis, Maryland. The interview features Jim Russell, who has served as one of the Leadership Under Fire team's chief mentors and advisors since LUF's formal inception in 2012. We hope you enjoyed this episode and Russell's insightful contributions to the summit. Jim Russell retired from the U.S. Marine Corps and the Chicago Police Department after serving several decades. Most recently, Jim served as the chief of staff in the Chicago Police Department. Prior to serving as the chief of staff, Jim served as the executive officer of Area Command and spent a preponderance of his 36-year career in gang tactical units. He commanded the Rogers Park 24th District and the department's mobile strike force, which targeted gang violence citywide. He has supervised all aspects of emergency response and joint operations during his career. Jim is also a retired Marine Reserve Chief Warrant Officer 5. Jim served with the USMC for 39 years with the bulk of his service in infantry and intelligence assessment, including three combat tours in Iraq. He has completed the Command and Staff College Expeditionary Warfare School and Marine Air Ground Task Force Intelligence Officers course. Jim has a Doctor of Education from Olivet Nazarene University with an emphasis on ethical leadership, as well as a Bachelor of Arts and Master of Science degrees in criminal justice from Lewis University. Jim has served as one of the LUF team's chief mentors and advisors since the team's formal inception in 2012. Jim, welcome. Thanks. Jim, the last time we gathered for an LUF Leadership in Human Performance Summit here in Annapolis was in 2019. It seems that the world we lead and serve in has changed dramatically over that period. A global pandemic, the emergence of widespread civil unrest a few summers ago, and the largest military conflict in Europe since World War II. What about the world has changed, and what has remained the same? Yeah, so that's a great question, and uh, I apologize. Uh, this is not what I normally do, uh, So, uh, but I got a lot of stuff I, I want to try to pour out and, uh, to all of you on this topic. And so um, what's changed is everything's changing. It's changing at a very rapid pace. We've talked about it for a good amount of time, and we're seeing evidence in, in, in everything. And, then we're, and we're going to talk about that in all these different questions. But what hasn't changed is the, your responsibility as leaders and, and, and what you need to do. So, uh, and you're, we're operating from two different uh, silos of information and goals. What, what you want to do, which I think it is, uh, I'm speaking on your behalf, and if you disagree, 
I'm, I'll be glad to talk about it. But I think what you're looking to be is a stoic leader. What you're interested in is having the wisdom uh, to be able to do your job, and, and you want to show justice in everything you do. You want to have courage to be able to do those things and, and moderation and, and how you go about your, your life and, and your operation. And that makes you unique. It's not a new idea. It's thousands of years old. And there is a lot of material out there to say that leaders who do those things are good leaders in tough times. And that's exactly what we're facing. Unfortunately, most of the world is not using that model. The model they're using is sophistry, okay? And what they're interested in politically is the next election. What they're interested in from the media is their media deadline, that they got a good story and so many hits. What they're interested as far as the economics is the next quarterly statement. And that's what's driven, you know, their decisions. So we're at, we're at odds. We're trying to do different things. And once you understand that, uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with it and it's very complicated, at least you can stand on, on rock solid ground and say, when they ask you a question, you can answer what they're, they're asking you. When, when, they get, when they're asking for a course of action, you're going to give them three courses of action that can actually accomplish things. And why do you want to be able to do that? Because this is a dangerous profession. We bury people. That's what we do. And we go back to work the next day. So, uh, so with that in mind for the, for the very first part, now let's go back and let's review the three things that we just talked about. A, a pandemic. So the first question is, do we have a pandemic plan? And, and the word plan means it has assumptions. Did we look at the plan and were the assumptions fitting to what we were looking at? Then the next thing is, do we have the training, the equipment, and the PPE? And then the fourth thing, do we follow the plan? And did the plan work? And lastly, where we're at right now, have we done an after action report to, you know, to, to, to discuss all of it? So the next time one of these things comes along, we'll do a better job. Because is it going to happen again? Yes. It is going to happen again. And could it be far worse? Yes. How do we know that? Because there's a ton of history out there. So that's number one. And number two is the, the civil disturbance. Was it affected by the pandemic? It was. We locked down everything except what? Protesters. First Amendment rights. They're not in school. They're not at work. But they're out protesting. And it's an election year. Does that have something to do with this? And it becomes a media event. I mean, all of this is tied into it, but what, what, what does it have to do with you? Well, you're the guys that have to deal with it. And, you know, so it's a very complex environment. And then we talk about number three, the Ukraine. And it's like, where did this come from? Why is this a big shock to our system? And I remember about four years earlier, I was talking to all my friends saying, hey, are we watching the Baltic? Did you know that the Swedes brought back a draft? The Swedes have got a draft? When was the last time the Swedes had a draft? And then Norway brought back the draft. And they're buying equipment like I've never seen people buy equipment. It's really hot up there. So in, in 2014, when Putin decides to take Georgia and Crimea, and we go, man, eh, none of our business. So to some people that were closer to the Russian border, it's a big deal. Is this tied into these other issues around the world? It is. Does it end up having an impact on us? It does. You know, and so all of these things together 
as we've already, people who preceded me today were talking about, makes for a very complicated world that we have to go to work each day and, and come up with some, some answers. So uh, I think it, I handle that one so we could go to the next one. <laughs> we're going to discuss professional reading a little bit later, but I think it's timely to ask you to share why you think leaders should be familiar with Toffler and Friedman's works. Thank you for being late. Yeah. So from the very beginning, you know, when, when Jason and I met in, in, in 06 in Fallujah, and then sometime later he mentioned to me, he goes, you know, do you think if we had leadership training in the fire service, it would be helpful if we, we had a program? And, and I said, yeah, I really do. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And so the original books they talked about was a war fighting. And then, and then the other thing was, was talking about John Boyd. And, and I want to talk John Boyd because this is the, kind of from the beginning, we were pushing Boyd because Boyd, after the Korean War, was in charge of tactics for the Air Force uh, fighter pilots. And everybody said conventional wisdom was the reason why we did so much better was that we had better, better trained pilots, and that's why we had such a, a, a big kill ratio. And Boyd, being a thinking person, and, and we'll talk about this more, it just bothered him that this answer wasn't a real answer. So he kept noodling this more and more, and he looks at the MiG, and he looks at the Sabre jet, and he finally comes to the conclusion, no, it's because the, the, the MiG has a half a canopy, and, uh, and the uh, Sabre jet had a full canopy, and that meant when they were moving, hinking and jinking, the pilot could look over his shoulder and acquire his target. So he came up with this term OODA loop, observation, orientation, decision, action, as a, a high speed uh, a way that you have to assess something for uh, any problem to come to a conclusion. So he started pushing that whole idea. Now some of the other things that are interesting about Boyd, just to lay the groundwork again, is, is the fact that he uh, was always a maverick. All right. He was one of those persons that saw a problem. He wanted to come up with the answer. Was he what you would call a politically astute general? I mean, colonel? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, he didn't get a job with one of the big corporations uh, after, after he left service. In fact, he became like a, a mad monk living in an apartment writing all these papers trying to come up with a better way of, uh, of, of conducting warfare. But he also had something to do about you know, ethical leadership which is another thing that right out of the book. And he said, if the boss asks for loyalty, give him integrity. If the boss asks for integrity, give him loyalty. And so I mean, he's something for all of us to look as a role model, uh, which we did, because he was also looking at it, something was called the information age. And he kind of teamed up with Alvin Toffler. And so Toffler, writing a book in 1970, and then 80 and 90, where he talked about power shift uh, and the third wave. And I remember when I first read it around 1980, I started giving it to all my friends who were school teachers and said, you know, you got to start pushing this book because this book is, gonna, is changing the world because what he's saying is we had the agrarian age that lasted for thousands of years and it created certain types of industries, certain types of wealth, and everything that we did was lined up uh, along that agrarian age model. And then we had the industrial age. And the industrial age created a revolution in everything. 
But there was three major wars in the world that were directly attributed to the change in, that was going on in the world at that time. And it was the Civil War, the Franco-Prussia War, and World War I. And that was warfare like people had never seen before. And it changed all kinds of rules and understandings in technology and warfare information operations and also on governments. It was the birth of the Russian Revolution at the end of World War One, you know, and, and, and it just changed everything. But he predicted now that we would be going into the information with Toffler. So Toffler gets hired by IBM. And they're saying, you know, we're thinking about going from our 3890 mega computers, which are like about the size of a small truck, you know what I mean, and replace them with the uh, personal computer. Is it a good idea? What do you think? And so he writes his paper and says, yeah, absolutely. It definitely do it. It's get into the market. He said, but not only is this a critical market to get into, it's going to change the entire world. He says, we're going to go from the industrial age to the information age. It's going to change businesses. It's going to change uh, the power structure. It's going to change wealth. And it's going, to, it's going to change warfare. All right? And everybody kind of bought into that going, going into uh, reading when we start talking about, you know, Friedman. So Friedman's book that we took for the book club was the Thank You for Being Late. And he's trying to explain it. So Friedman has always been like a cheerleader for the, the whole idea of the information age and globalization. Well, that's great if you're on the winning side of this equation. But it's terrible if you're on the bottom side of it. So what are we looking at right now across the world? The beginning of the information age changes. And it's affecting everything. It's affecting the markets. It's affecting you know, the prices of everything. It's, it's affecting what's going on in Europe, Asia, uh, South America, you know, China. It's all connected. And have we seen the end of it? No. Do we understand every all the nuances? No. Well, now I'm going to come right back to what does this have to do with first responders? Well, here's the deal. I don't care what happens about this. You're going to be involved in it. And we're already seeing evidence of it, you know, in, in the cities. I'd like to discuss civil unrest a little more. Yeah. Those of us in New York City navigated it over the course of several very intense nights in the summer of 2020 and many others in the room across the country have navigated as well. Were you surprised by the extent to which civil unrest occurred in urban areas across the United States? No. And, and I mean, just no, absolutely not. I mean, the thing of it is, I, I remember I was giving a class at uh, in Chicago, the Marine unit, is the fire and police are in the same building, you know, at, at, out in the lakefront. I was out there with a couple other instructors, and we were teaching about how to use uh, radiation devices. But we asked everybody, it was coming up to be Memorial Day, well, what's your plan for the weekend? And they said, they didn't have any plans. And I went, what do you mean? <laughs> you, it's, you, you don't have any plans, you got everything going on. Uh, and they said, no, we got nothing, Jim. We don't have anything planned. And I'm going, oh boy. Uh, it's gonna be a rough weekend. Well, it was a rough weekend. They completely lost the city. They didn't call the SWAT team until 7 p.m. that night. So I'm, here's the deal, across the board with all the different, you, you can't just walk into this and, and, and have, these problems are so complicated, you've got to have a, a plan, just like a pandemic plan, long ahead of time, already laid out. You've got to have all these different you know, troops that are already pre-staged to be able to deal with that. It, it isn't something like you can just throw it together and, and, and like a TV dinner and throw it in a microwave. So it, it's not going to work. 
And I'm gonna just expand on it a little bit. So just recently, if anybody's from Nashville, I gotta throw a huge attaboy out to the police officers in Nashville that responded to the, to the school shooting and did it perfectly. I mean, it was absolutely perfect. You watch the video, I know if you were like me, my heart was pounding and I, I, I was so happy. They did everything right. Well, here's, that's the good news, here's the bad news. First time I saw the, uh, the whole idea of what to do for an active shooter was in December of 2002, I was in Israel. And, uh, and, and Shin Bet, I was watching their training. And, that's, and they, did, they did the active shooter drill. And that was foreign to me, and I'm looking at it going, well, that's different. And the guy next to me was from Switzerland, and he was like a real pro in firearms. And I said, hey, uh, have you guys do anything like this? And he went, no. So then they, like this, function. And we went out for you know, drinks afterwards, and I got to ask the colonel in charge. I said, you know, that's different. You know, and, and he said, you know, and very politely and honestly, he said, you know, Jim, we used to do that too, but we've only got a few seconds to make a difference, and you can't wait. You've got to go right away. Well, so attaboy to Nashville, but this is 21 years later. 21 years of understanding that there was a change coming on the way we have to respond. It took 21 years for us to finally get, get it right. So let's go back to our example when we went from the agrarian age to the industrial age. Civil War, 1860s, 1870, you know what I mean? World War I. That's a long time for us to finally get our act together that we have to operate in a, in a, in a different environment. And, and as we're seeing, evidently, that's exactly what we're looking at. This is all changing. It's going to be demanding on leaders. And no matter what, how we play this out, first responders are going to be uh, called upon to have to do a lot more. In the past year or two, you have hosted several LUF book clubs where leaders from across the country have tackled several books devoted to the topic of leadership. In addition to Friedman's Thank You for Being Late, the other books included Brute, about the life and legacy of General Victor Brute Krulak, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and Shackleton's Way. Would you mind sharing what it is about Brute Krulak, Marcus Aurelius, and Ernest Shackleton? that resonates with you and what aspects of their philosophies on, on leadership and human performance? Are. Yeah. So clearly, Brew Krulak, which the first funny thing, so Brew Krulak is a graduate of, of Annapolis. That's kind of, you know, cool. Uh, he's also five foot four inches tall. The reason he got the name Brute wasn't a compliment. When he showed up, the senior classman looked at him and goes, what's your story, Brute? And, but, but Brute being Brute, he, he embraced the uh, nickname and he used it from that from the for the rest of his life. He defied everything in his personal life. He was Jewish and nobody even knew it. Even his own his children, all three, all three of his sons, you know, went into the military and served in Vietnam. They never realized it. And, and somebody, an author who wrote the book about him, when he tried to get him to talk about it, said uh, he brought up the subject, and his response was, "Well, my father said." Uh, you're going to be short, you're going to be bald, but you don't have to be fat. And that was his response. And it was like a very odd response. But if you understand Crute, what he's doing is you give him a situation and he's going to come up with the best solution. He was a genius as far as the Marine Corps. He's the guy that came up. He, was, uh, he, he viewed the landing craft in Shanghai that the Japanese had. He wrote a complete paper on it. And then he made a, a classic mistake. He wrote a whole paper saying, we don't have anything like this landing craft. 
The Japanese have this different uh, uh, capability. He writes the paper, he sends it off to the Department of the Navy. When he gets back to the States, like three years later, he just assumes everybody took this report and they're working diligently to get us, you know, these, 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 these boats. And so he goes up to Washington to find out and he gets, he goes to some side room and the guy opens a file cabinet and basically says, well, we got this from some nut in the Pacific. And, and you know, so that, then he, he realized that nobody's working on it and he took it on and they actually pulled off the miracle of the Higgins boat. And so Eisenhower says the Higgins boat was probably the, the single uh, most important uh, technological advantage that we had in, in the all of World War II. The other thing which I, he did well, which was good for us in the Marine Corps, he did a great job raising his three, his three sons. And then Charles Krulak, uh, Brute doesn't become the commandant because he insults uh, uh, Johnson you know, in, in his office. And there's a picture of it being thrown out, thrown out of the office by President Johnson. But his son does become commandant and, and his son had the wisdom to write the doctrine of the three black war. And right now, as the world we're looking at, that three black war is probably more valid than, than anything we've looked at before. So that's, that's, that's one. The second one is Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. It's a short book, but it's an unbelievable book. And, and, it, and what makes it so, so if you ever watch the movie Gladiator, the Richard Harris's character, guy in the purple suit sitting on the hill, that's, that's Marcus Aurelius. And, uh, I mean, that's the movie portrayal of him. But who is he for real? He is a, a he's pro considered the, the, probably the greatest Roman emperor there was. And he wrote a book to him, it's, a, it's just notes to himself. This is his personal notebook to himself. He didn't write it for anybody else. And so we, so we got an insight to him. And it's kind of interesting, you go, well, what happened? So anyway, he wrote the book. So there were copies of it, but not many copies. But there would be copies in Rome, but that library got burned. There were copies that were in Constantinople. Well, that got burned during the Crusades. There was copies in Egypt that got burned. You know, and the only one that was in Cordoba. And so they rediscovered that at the beginning of the Renaissance. And then it got translated to Latin. And then people started to read it. But it was only you know, translated into Latin, so it was tough for people to read. So, but when you read it, it is actually a book for a stoic leader of what to do every single day in every situation. I, I can't think of a better book. You know, and there's millions of examples uh, where he talks about these things. And, and, and what he's really driving home is these three facts. You've got to be comfortable with yourself. You have to be comfortable with the people that you work around. And you have to be comfortable with the universe that we live in. And if you, if you don't take that into consideration, you're not going to be able to do anything. And the other aspect of it is, it, you know, he's basically telling you to do the right thing. That's the summary of it. Which, in essence, what we're talking to all leaders, that you need to be able to do that. But, but it's hot. Now, so, okay, well, there we got it. That's, I know what to do. So managers are interested in doing things right. And the leaders are interested in doing the right thing. Do we all know what that is? That's really hard. So you need a model that helps you to figure out, you know, to weigh these things. And particularly when, when you're trying to do the right thing and the people you're talking to are trying to do what? Win, on, win an election, the next uh, you know, media cycle, or the next quarterly earnings statement, you're not in sync. 
So that's going to be more complicated for you. So, but having the book, you know, helps you uh, kind of, you know, sort that out. I think I hit the three books. Okay. Shackleton. Oh, Shackleton. Oh, Shackleton. Same thing. The nice thing about the Shackleton book, uh, if you haven't read it, he's on the expedition to go to South America. Does he get there? No, he doesn't. But what he ends up, what happens to him, they get stuck on the ice for two years. They all think he's dead. But the crew comes out 100%. They all walk out. I mean, it's a miracle that they come out. And all the people, will, when they attest to it, they said, I know it was really bad, but it might have been the best time of my life. The morale was sky high. And, you know, they managed everything. So it is a wonderful leadership book and, and all these different steps. But does he share the same sentiments as Marcus Aurelius? You know what I mean? He does. He's saying the same things for the same reasons. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful you know, role model for us to use to understand how you organize things. And then uh, Eccleton does a fine job of talking about you know, he, he, how he teams up his different teams and how he prepares for different problems. And uh, uh, just one little small anecdote, but the one time they're so cold, and uh, they're trying to make their way uh, at the end there. And he tells the guys, you know, to take a nap. But he realizes if he doesn't get them moving, they're going to die. So he wakes them up and tells them, you've been asleep for, like, you know, an hour, so it's time to go. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we, we feel better. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's really important. You know, I mean, so you couldn't think of a worse situation for them to be in. Uh, to come out, out of that. So it's another excellent example for us as leaders to look at and find these, these, these traits and say these are things we can emulate in, in, our, in our environment. And it ends up talking, we're going to talk more about, so like recruiting, retention, morale are the biggest issues across the board. And, and so these are some examples where people in the worst conditions had units with the highest morale. And, and why did they have that? Because of what they, they were doing. Okay. That's a perfect segue, Jim. It seems that in a rather short period of time, fire departments, police departments, and even the USMC are struggling to recruit and retain enough personnel. Why is this? Yeah, that's it. And so, and I think, so let's, let's all kind of just lean into this for a second. It's very important, you know, uh, when we were in, in, in Fallujah, we would ask the big questions. And I think that's for all of this. For a leader, you need to be able to ask questions. And when you ask questions, creates a process to get answers so you can make an informed decision. This goes back to being pillar one is wisdom, right? So it's, it should be based on some facts, some, some understanding. So why we fight, who we fight, how we fight was the question we asked in Fallujah. And by asking that question repeatedly, we came up with a different set of answers than some of the other people who were just there. We're here for this long, and we have to do something, which would drive me nuts. Because they said, well, Jim, we have to do something, so what are you going to do? We're going to drive up and down the road. What? I mean, all we're doing is getting kids killed. Uh, we're not getting anything. We're not moving up. You know, <laughs> stop it. Stop driving. If you, if you don't know what you're doing, then don't do anything. Because you're just driving up and down the road. Is, is, is kind of crazy. So we take that same kind of model and, and apply it back to us when we're talking about our mission. And then on the recruiting, so my friends who are in recruiting right now, I have to ask them the question, 
are we recruiting the right people for the right thing, you know, for the right reasons to do the right thing? And what I get, what I get is, no, we're, we're recruiting people for MOSs. You know, I need this MOS, and I need this MOS, and I need this skill, I need that. And I think, I don't think that's the answer. And what is that based on? Well, it's, it's based upon these other things. I, so I want to I wanna push very hard that what we need is more generalists and less specialists. I don't need somebody to come in and give me an algorithm to tell me what kind of leaders or employees I need. All I need is just a cold, wet day. Give me any cold, wet day, and I'll figure out who the good people are. Right? And then, and then you know, so it's like, so who are, the, who are the real workers? Well, they're the ones that come to work. Who are my first responders? Well, the ones that are there. You know what I mean? I need to put the time and effort into them. So then, you know, it's one of my favorite sayings to say, you got workhorses, show horses, and mules. Show horses ain't worth a shit. They spend all their time looking pretty. You got to get them to try to do some work, well, you're, it's going to mess up their uniform. Plus, they have all, you know, I got to go to the gym. I have to have so many calories and all this other nonsense. They're no good. All right? And then there's the, the workhorses. They're specialists. They only do left-handed gypsies with hazel eyes on Tuesdays. Great. That doesn't do me any good. And then there's the mules. Well, here, there's the mule. Be nice to the mule because that's your loyal people. You know what I mean? Make sure that, you know, the ones that are going to show up, make sure they get the training. If somebody says we need to meritoriously promote somebody, say, I the mule. And they go, well, what about that? You go, forget the star. You know, give it to the mule. Why? Because he's going to be the one that shows up and gets the job done. So I think we all need to address this. I have not talked to any group anywhere and recruiting, retention, and morale is not the number one thing. And who's responsible for those three things? Leaders. This is the realm of leaders. This, this is Shackleton, right? He had to recruit his crew, he had to train them, and he had to be, be, be sure about the morale. So you go, well, you go back and you look at what, what is Marcus Aurelius saying? You know, what is Boyd saying? What is Shackleton saying? And I think, is it going to be helpful? Yeah, I think it is. Your beloved USMC is undergoing a seismic doctrinal shift as it pivots away from maneuver-based MAGDIF to maritime-centric and specialized force design 2030 doctrine. The changes have generated a contentious and public debate among senior general officers, both retired and current. How do you feel about the doctrinal shift and the emerging concepts? Okay, so kind of break this down a little bit. So first and foremost, Family business stays in the family. We're all first responders, and that's what we're talking about here. I'm not here to say anything bad about anything uh, to the media, or I'm not doing that, and I don't believe in it. And what I do believe in what you just said is that we have to honestly look at this and then shake it and see if there's any level of truth what we're, trying, what, what we're doing. Because I think that what we're trying to do is come up with a perfect plan for 10 years from now to fight China. And I don't think that's what we, sh you know, we should be preparing for all these contingencies, just like we do it in, as for police and fire. I, I'm just not, once again, I'm not at the show horse. I'm not the one-trick pony, you know what I mean, that only has one thing that I'm trying to do. So it's much more complicated than that. In December of 2002, prior to the uh, invasion of, of Iraq, a bunch of flag officers, uh, Army, uh, Navy, Air Force, and Marine, all came out and, and, and did an op-ed to all the press saying that they were against the invasion. 
They were against what the Secretary of uh, Defense was uh, presenting. And they pointed out in detail all the things that were going to happen if, if we did the invasion. Anybody remember that? Anybody? See, well, it's happening because now we're saying that the military wanted to go to war. Well, let me tell you something. The military doesn't pick them. We just, we just get to go. All right? So, it's, it, it, so, the, so the fact that nobody said anything, you go, that's not true. You can look it up right now. You can Google it. You can pull it up. You can read everything that they said. That's, that's one. So the next thing is about this recent withdrawal from Afghanistan which I think is, you know, a lot of people are kind of saying, wow, that, that really didn't work out the way that we had it planned. But I don't think that it's not the fault of General McKenzie. He's a good man. He did, uh, he did what he was told. He was told by two presidents. The first president was Trump. He said, I want you out of there by May 31st. That's a pretty direct order. Now, his staff sat down with their staff, and they argued about a million things. They were told that we don't care. This is what we're doing. He was also told by the new president that came in, it was, you know, President Biden, and he said, okay, I'll give you three more months. You're leaving on August 31st. And then once again, they came up with a whole list of all these other issues. Don't worry about it. We're leaving. So that's what they did. That's what they executed. When they did it, the first and most difficult thing to do was closing Bagram Airfield. That's huge. I mean, it's, it's really like, you know, take... Annapolis right here, make it about th you know, three times bigger in a foreign country and say we're going to try to move everybody out in the middle of the night and all our equipment and not, not let anybody know that we're leaving. That's what they did. And one morning they woke up, they said, hey, they're all gone. And when I heard that, I said, wow, I don't, know who, I don't know who did that, but whoever they did, that was amazing to be able to, look, just you imagine trying to evacuate your firehouse in New York without letting anybody know you're leaving and then you're all gone and all your equipment. When then one morning you go like, that's pretty impressive. So they did that, that was number one. Number two, they had to close the embassy. They closed down the embassy, they brought down the flag, they folded it up, they handed it to the ambassador. At this point, we're done. What happened? Uh, we decided to stay a little longer. Whoops. And this is the important part. Who did they send back? Conventional infantry. It's a bunch of kids that had never been there before that are sitting in Kuwait. And they sent them over there. Right now, this minute, you get out there and you help us change, you know, to deal with this thing. No special training, no high-tech stuff, no super-duper, you know, planning, no, nothing. Conventional force, go jump in a breach. And that's what we did. Same people are telling me that we're going to do everything different in 10 years. Do I believe it? I don't believe it. Because you just validated to me that the need for conventional forces will never go away. The need for people to jump right into the breach, even though something politically has changed, is going to always be the same. So our responsibility is to answer the questions when they tell us to do whatever it is to do, give them the three courses of, of actions, to, and then prepare for the worst case scenario. Because we're going to end up owning it anyway. And uh, so it's, it's tough. And I'm going to just go on another sidetrack. For all the, all the veterans, and I know there's a lot of them that are having great difficulty, and I feel their pain. The, the current 20 years of, of veterans that we have share a lot with World War I veterans, much more so than and other generations. And there's a reason why. 
And, and, and the reason is because the World War I veterans fought the war to end all wars, only to find out more wars are coming. So there's a lot of World War I writers, and some of them to include uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, and also uh, a bunch of poets, uh, and, they're, and they're all in the same thing. And our current veterans were, were told that they were doing a global war on terrorism. Both generations put everything into it, only to find out that they were given a task that was just a little too big. You know what I mean? How are you going to get this done? How are you going to get this to an end state? So they're carrying that, and it's hard. So uh, that goes back to what the responsibility of everybody in this room is. That's what we're asking people to do, these, these tough missions. And if you think they're going to get any easier in this information age that we're currently in, they're not. It is going to be tough. Our responsibility as leaders is to be able to give straight answers about what the capabilities and limitations are. I don't advocate to resign your commission and quit, you know, I don't. I, I actually even, I, I, I ask you to stay here. Keep working. You've got to stay in the room. Yeah, and the next one. <laughs> Speaking of the USMC, I had the opportunity to join you and Jason and several midshipmen yesterday for lunch at the Naval Academy. I watched as these fine young men and women sat on the edge of their seat while you talked about principal leadership that young sailors and Marines in harm's way deserve. What is it that motivates you to continue to give so freely of your time and wisdom to young leaders? Yeah, so there's a lot of people that say that, that the young people aren't as good. I don't find that to be true. I didn't find it to be true in Iraq. I don't find it to be true now. They want the same things from us that they always did. If we help them be tactically and tactically proficient, they'll love you. And if you don't help them do that, they're going to hate you. You know what I mean? Because that's what they expect from us. So I met three young, uh, uh, they were all from Chicago, and they all graduated from public schools. Public schools from Chicago, graduating from, from Annapolis, two of them are going to be pilots. I can't wait to get home and tell everybody about it. You know what I mean? And the only lesson that I wanted to talk to them about, and this is tough for officers, their first relationship between the officer and the enlisted. Because if it's handled right, it's a positive thing for the rest of their lives. And if it isn't handled right, they're both scarred by this, and, and, they, and they carry a resentment. And it's, it's hard because you've got a, a, a young lieutenant and, 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 a, and a staff sergeant, you know, or a chief petty officer, uh, E6, and, and about 10 years, around eight, 10 years of experience. And they're, they're both, you know, and, and they're, this is their first time working together. And here's the key to it, and I, I, and I want to throw it out because it's, it's one of those little nuanced things that you have to learn how to do. It's, this is the art of leadership. It's, it's not a checklist that's in, in, your, in your pocket. It's, it's not something you, gotta, you put in your phone. But the key is the lieutenant has got to command and let the staff sergeant run the platoon. If they learn that lesson and work together, it's, it's, it's great all the way around. And then and you say, when you say lieutenant command, what does that mean? It means do the right thing. Hard, hard for a young kid. So. I would add also, uh, this is the second time that I had the opportunity to meet the mids. Yesterday's mids, most of them were the sons of Chicago and New York City firemen. 
the first time I went, I went with Jason when he taught uh, a class here at Annapolis, and I was stunned, you know, that that they were so young. Like, how could you be that young, you know, at that age, determined you want to commit yourself and your life to something bigger and greater than yourself? It renews your you know, belief in the human spirit and the American spirit. You know, much like those um, who came to join us after that September morning. And there were many times when we would say, who was going to come and take this job? Or what parent would allow their, their child to come into this absolute horror? But they did. In that time period, they've done the most amazing of things. They've done pandemics, biblical floods, terrorist events, and fires. They really are extraordinary. Many of you are in that category as well. And, you know, it's something I talk about a lot because I've seen so many of them, right? The willingness uh, to serve, right, to raise your hand uh, and to be bigger and better, you know, and no greater example than my probie, Tom Miller, in the back. He's a kid who, who could have gone to any Ivy League college right out of high school, did eight years in the Marine Corps, you know, and then went to Columbia, got a degree in astrophysics, astrophysics, and he's a New York City fireman. You know, there was a time when we had three Ivy Leaguers in 26 truck being driven by a caveman, right? <laughs> but the, the point is, you know, among us, there are still great ones. And it's our responsibility as, you know, the senior people, if you will, to pass what we learn to them because now it's their job. And um, ultimate responsibility for them rests with us, right? To bring them in, to develop them. And uh, it really, you know, sometimes we're skeptical in this job, but every time I see them, and I've had like 65 people come to 26 trucks since I've been there. And uh, it's incredible. You know, they've gone on to be chiefs and leaders all across the city, right? And they're taking our system with them, but at their core, they're absolutely phenomenal. And we need, to, we need to look at them from a different perspective because they are simply American. You know, they're great Americans, and it uh, brings a tear to my eye. So, Jim, we'll move on for one more. Okay. I've heard you say on numerous occasions that leadership in our professions is both an art and a science, but is most accurately an applied art. It seems that many leaders in the first responder community and military are much more concerned about the scientific STEM aspects, but at the expense of contemplating the artistic, or at worst yet, neglecting the human element. Yeah, so another book that we, we put on the list was this one, The Black Swan. And you know, I, I came across it like a lot of books, and I had no idea what it was about. And I started reading it, and because uh, English is not his first language, it's, it's really confusing. You know, it took me about, I had to get through the book like three quarters of the way before it finally dawned on me what he was really saying. And then when it did, it was absolutely, absolutely profound. And what he basically said is all, all of this science that we're telling everybody about with these algorithms, with this predictive analytics, is complete nonsense. And I'm going to try to sum up, you know, everything that, you know, in, in, in a couple of sentences. 
the bottom line is if I create a bell curve of anything, what you're really looking at is the mean, median, mode. It's the average day. Do we live in the average day? No, we don't. We live in the edges, and they're not even measuring that. So how effective is this helping us for the kind of decisions that we have to make? It doesn't. So it's bad math, it's bad science, and it's a bad model. So all these people that are trying to sell us all these predictive analytics models are full of hooey. All right? So you, as an experienced leader, are a better, you know, a barometer of what's coming down the pike than they are. And that's why, when we're going back here to, to about this, that's why, yes, we use science, and we use science in a real context, not in a nonsensical context. I, we have people walking around, and if you ask them a question, they think because they got Google on their phone, they know all the answers of the world. The truth is, you don't know anything. And so the other thing, the applied art, this is very important about the applied art. We talked about the lieutenant and his first assignment, just him, his platoon, and his platoon sergeant, how critical that is. But you know what else is? Every step after that. And that's a learning curve with each one of them. What a mistake do we make in our organizations? Well, we have some stars, and they jump right up to the top of the chain. And what did they not get? Those lessons along the way. What's the quality of their decisions? No matter how smart they are, no matter how ambitious they are. Lousy. Because they've never done these things. They didn't take the time to learn the craft. So just play around with that for a few minutes. How long does it take to learn to be filling it is? You know what I mean? Whatever that task. And I'm going to tell you, a lot of times it's about two years. That's two seasons. You know what I mean? So do you really understand what's going on? And you go, well, it really it takes that long to be able to go, yeah, if you really want to know the job, all right? And then when you get farther, when you move up the chain and you're making larger decisions involving more people and more complex issues, you'll, you'll actually, you'll do a better job, a much better job. And so that was the lesson for me when we got to be chief of staff. We didn't pick people because we didn't want them to do a good job, but we picked them and obviously go, no, they're doing terrible. We're going to have to pull them out. And then you got to go, how did that happen? Well, go back and we went through the bio and realized they skipped a couple of these assignments. You know what I mean? And so therefore, they didn't have the time to learn. And I'll tell you, for like in the police world, uh, what we call the, uh, the district commander, you know, I think you guys would call it precinct commander, whatever you call it in your city. It's when they're in charge of about you know, two, 300 people. At that, at that role, they have to learn how to work with the community. And some of them are like, I don't talk to them about nothing. Well, you're going to fail. That's your job. And every position after that, you know, they, yeah, that's 50% of their job. And, and if they don't learn that lesson, then, then, they're, then they're bound to fail. One last little, you know, side note, crazy thing. Selecting people for different assignments. I, I, I got to participate, which was fun, for selecting guys to be a canine, selecting guys to be a SWAT supervisor. And so I'll give away these secrets now because I think they've probably got another model that they're using. But so, uh, so canine, uh, which is people want to be a canine officer because they get extra pay a take-home car. So we ask them a lot of questions, and they do all these different tests and things. But then we set up a, 
uh, an interview process. And the interview process, we got a little game we do. And so like he asked me, he go, do you, do, you, do you own a dog? And you go, so what's, his, what's your vet name? You know, and, and it just, that's one. But the last thing is after we're all said and done, and we open the door and they can leave, we have uh, tactically staged an officer with a dog. Now, a real dog lover cannot walk past that dog without stopping, getting down on their knees, and hugging the dog. <laughs> they can't. It's impossible. And so here we sit. The whole thing so far is just a sham for setting this up. And then the, the guy who's just there for the money walks right past them, and the other guy goes right up to the dog, and you know, and he gets, he's got dog hair all over his uniform, and, he, and you know, you just go, well, that's, that's, our dog, that's the dog guy. So now we're picking SWAT supervisors. Same thing, same thing. So I got, what it is is I got four type A alpha personalities. They all want to be SWAT. And they can all like shoot like Annie Oakley and they can run a thousand miles and all this other stuff. But is that what I'm looking for? No, I'm looking, I'm looking for a leader. So what I do is uh, I'm setting them up. I say, There's a hallway and then it goes into a room. Say, okay, the four of you, you're a team. I want you to you know, move down the hallway and then clear the room. Simple, simple. Right? How does that go? It's a disaster. Why? They've never practiced together. That's impossible for them to do that. What happens? One of them either just runs ahead on by himself, which is like, that's a fail. You know what I mean? Or, or just freezes and does nothing. Two of them start screaming at each other, but one of the four actually tries to be a calming influence to get them all herded together and then, and, and, and then do what they're supposed to do. Which person am I really looking for? That guy. So like I'm saying, if I'm looking for people to do something, I don't need some scientific test from somebody's laboratory. I just need a cold day and some rain and then go up to a, a guy and, and, and just give him this really crappy job and then see how they handle it. And what what and I've had this conversation with a few people and the guy's like doing this whole thing and, and then he finds out, oh, oh wait, is this the evaluation for and I go, Well yeah. Well, they go, well, I would have done it different. I go, well, I know. See, that's... <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about... It's, a, it's leadership, you know what I mean? And, and you set the tone, and I, I heard earlier today a couple people talk about leadership in these different things, and, and everything they said was absolutely correct. And, 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 and I, my last point will be, I was well known. I never talk in the radio. I never. I mean, it's just I don't. I'm, at, I'm out there in all the scenes, but I don't. If I talk on the radio, I mean, everybody just goes, oh, he's, he's on the radio. You know, and so usually what it'll be, I'll say, like, uh, you know, well, where, where are you at? Oh, stay there. I'll be right there. They're all like, oh boy. You know, and, uh, but screamers, some people think that's being a good supervisor. Get on the radio and start screaming at everybody. Well, the last thing I need in a stressful situation is some lunatic on the radio screaming at people. It doesn't help do anything. And, 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 and I know, I think Liam brought it up and some other folks, I'm telling you, that's an art. That is an art. To be able to stay, I know, you know who practices that art more than anybody? Pilots. You know, because they can't fly the plane if they lose the control. And I know I've talked to them about a lot of different things. I could tell some very funny stories. But they got to stay mellow yellow or they can't fly. But that doesn't mean they're not upset, you know. <laughs> I mean, I know one guy who he launched them in the middle of the night on a carrier. Got two guys that sleep in the cockpit, and he didn't know what he was doing, so he launched them. You know, 
which is in the you know, completely black, they crack up the engine, you're going, don't you know, catapult them out, your heart rate's like this, only to find out, okay, forget it, it was a mistake, come on back. Whoa. You know, when they land, they definitely want to talk to this guy who, uh, you know, not good. So, all right, well, thank you very much. And I'm sorry I, I rattled on so much. But it's perfect, Jim. Okay. Do we have any questions for Jim? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I so I'll go back to this is the data that I get from my friends in the Marine Corps right now. Uh, when they recruit the young young men to come in or young young people to come in and they go in the infantry, they have the highest scores of anybody coming in. And at the end of the four years, they're so pissed off on their exit interview, uh, they all leave the Marine Corps and they go to the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, and they're happy to get them. You know what I mean because they're they're super, super motivated people. And what they're mad about was they didn't get to do anything. You know, they got all this talent. And, 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 and so this resonates with all of us. So, you know, when they get to go overseas, a Lance Corporal can make life and death decisions for like, you know, 40, 50 people with all kinds of multi-million dollar equipment. And when they're stateside, they can't even be in charge of a water can. So I think we do the same thing with our own people. I think we're too hung up uh, you know, with with the specialists and not enough with the generalists. You, if they got a good heart, that's all. That's the only thing we really need to be concerned about. Do they have a good heart? If they have a good heart and you work with them, they're going to be fine. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, a lot of them. Are, you know, when you when you ask them, well, what do you want to do? Well, I, and they tell you all this crazy stuff. You go, well, that's not the job. The job might be standing on a manhole cover in the rain, and you got to do it with a smile on your face. You know, and so uh, I, I think the, you know, recruit it and build it, but look for the people that really want to be. Uh, so I, for the military, I'm looking for people that want to be a soldier, sailor, airman, and a marine. I'm not looking for people that want to you know, fill in the blanks, all this other stuff, because uh, the flexibility it, I think is the strength of the organization. And right now, we're so short in everything. And and and, and when you talk to them, the morale. Uh, it, it doesn't resonate either. So once you get them, you got to work on just like Shackleton, uh, Shackleton did to go to uh, South America is, is build a morale and, and, and be inclusive with them. And that takes first responder leaders that are right with them doing the same thing, you know. And so whatever you're doing, everybody's doing it together. And and it's a, a you know, see me, do me, you know, follow me. Uh, examples and it works out and and uh, and I believe that very strongly. You know, just saying we're going to give them more money and more this and more. I, well, you could do that, but that's not what they really. That's not what they really join for. That's not what they stay for. And that's what. That's not what they. That's not the emotional buttons that we need to be, to be pressing. And I'll be glad to talk to anybody about that, because what you'll find is if you have a good unit. It's not about the candy bars or the air conditioning or the, it's about being part of a good unit where you know that you're doing, you know, God's work 
serving the community, and, and you mean it, uh, that's good work. That's something to do, and that's something to recruit for. And I hope that helped. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.